Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Well, hello and welcome to Engage for Success Radio with me, Jo Moffat. Uh, Engage for Success is a not-for-profit movement. We're the UK's leading voice on the topic of employee engagement. We're raising awareness and running events through our area networks around the country and our topic and sector-specific thought and action groups, developing research, publishing case studies and shining a light on great practice. Do visit us at engageforsuccess.org where you can learn more uh, as well as sign up for our weekly newsletter. So, I'm Jo Moffat. I'm one of the regular hosts of Engage for Success Radio. And as with everyone who's involved with our movement, um, I'm a volunteer uh, and I do what I do for Engage for Success alongside my day job. And my day job is to be uh, Managing Director of Woodread, which is a specialist creative agency where we use the tools, the techniques and the insight-led approach of the advertising and marketing world to help our clients create great places to work, high-performing cultures of engaged employees. Um, So welcome to radio show number 498. Uh, I can't believe we're only two shows off our 500, which is really quite an achievement for a a voluntary organization. Um, And today's topic is going to be around how we go about building an irresistible employee-focused organization. And I'm very pleased to welcome back a, um, a guest who's, who's been on Engage for Success Radio with us a couple of times and contributed to some of our Engage for Success live events too, a name which will be familiar to many of you, I'm sure. Uh, so welcome to uh, Josh Burson, HR influencer and CEO of the Josh Burson Company. Josh, welcome back. Thank you, Joe. It's great to be here. Well, it's, it's, it's great to have you with us. And we were just talking before we went on air that I've caught you uh, just before you go off for what sounds like a very well-deserved holiday. And you're actually coming to visit us in the UK. So uh, wishing, you, um, right. wishing you a, lo- a lovely time with that. Um, your, um, your president is paving the way for you because he arrived <laughs> here today. So. Right. I didn't realize he was coming the same time we were, but we're not in the same part of the country this week, so. You're not. You're not. So you you won't you won't have a cavalcade following you around then. (laughs) Absolutely excellent. Okay. So as I say, Josh is um, uh, very much an influencer in the HR space. So though his his background is very much broader business than that, and I believe um, you actually originally qualified with your with your bachelor's degree in engineering, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of an engineer by nature, and practiced mechanical engineering for two years, got a master's degree, and then got involved in technology, and then didn't really stumble into human resources, um, you know, research and consulting and all that until really I was in my 50s, so late mm-hmm. 40s. So, <clears throat> so it's been very interesting for me the last 20 right. years being so affiliated with HR stuff. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, and of course you now your um, organisation that you founded was Burson and Associates, and that's now mm-hmm. Burson by Deloitte. And then there's the, well, it's been, the just, just Burson it's been Academy. shut down by Deloitte. It doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> oh really? Ah, okay. yeah, they just okay. disbanded it. So ah, all right, okay, but we all have that the, research the... is gone. I don't know where it all went. I guess it's somewhere in Deloitte. I'm not sure what they're doing with it. 
Right, interesting. Okay, so it's really the Josh Bursting company that that yeah. is the main the mainstay of everything now. And and you're here. I mean, you've been with us before um, on on the radio show, and also contributed to some of our live events as well, which is always always great to have you. Mm-hmm. But today we're going to be focusing on the topic of your most recent book, um, Irresistible. Um, mm-hmm. which sounds sounds intriguing um, and uh, we're very much looking forward to learning a little bit more about that over the over the coming half hours so um, perhaps we you could when, when did that when was that published first of all and, and what drove you to focus on that as a particular topic well um, the book was published last fall so it's a, a couple of months ago um, this was a really a many-year journey for me to write this book. It wasn't something I did in a short period of time. And uh-huh. what it really is is the summary of many, many research studies and conversations and meetings we've had with very large companies, mostly bigger companies, about mm-hmm. the transformation that they're going through from the old industrial labor model to the, to the world we're in today where employees are – um, all adding extraordinarily amounts of value, every single one of them, and um, and need a different management approach. So you know, it's, so the book's chapter, you know, broken into seven chapters that are really mm-hmm. about the organizations of the future, which are the organizations of today, and how we get there, how we got there, and what to do to address these seven um, principles. And you know, the idea of being irresistible isn't just, you know, being a nice place to work. That's part mm-hmm. of it, but it's, it's, it's development, it's productivity, it's growth, it's culture, it's purpose. There's all sorts of things around it. So, so it's, it's, there's a lot of stories in that book. A lot of history okay, I'm in sure there book. are. I was going to, I was going yeah. to ask you actually, if you, how you would define an irresistible organization and it obviously encompasses those things yeah. you've talked about, but is there a, is there a particular definition that you would put to it, Josh? Yeah, what, well, because I've been doing this so long, what, what basically what tends to happen in companies is um, there are companies that are very, very successful early in their life, and I mean like the first decade or so, um, mm-hmm. and they oftentimes don't necessarily take care of their people that well because they, their product, their service, there's something about them that's unique and they grow and grow and grow because they've just hit the market at the right time. And then um, something difficult takes place. Uh, a competitor catches up to them. The product uh, doesn't achieve its goals. The market changes, the economy changes, and they go through this soul searching exercise about, well, you know, wait a minute, everything was so great last year. What happened this year? And then, and there's this, um, realization that the people practices, the culture, the management are the most important thing we have. And then they mm-hmm. get really focused on that. And that's where these seven principles come in. You, you'll find the seven principles, you know, if you look at Twitter, you know, and all the stories about Elon Musk or, you know, pick your favorite fast growing company that's, you know, a few years old, they may or may not practice the things in this book. But you look at companies that are 15 or 20 years old that are still thriving and growing and reinventing themselves. They're all doing the things that are in this book. So, um, mm-hmm. so that's so really it's about, the, it's about being sustainable then, Josh. It is. It's, you you know, talked about being enduring. It's a, the, mm-hmm. One of the words in the title is enduring because I think what mm-hmm. happens in companies in business, um, 
it's relatively easy. I'm not saying it's never easy to start a business, but it's relatively easy to come up with a great product that people want to buy. Yeah. But how do you sustain it over time with all of the stress and pressures and changes that take place? That's what this book is about. It's about dealing, building a long-term enduring organization. And that Mm. tends to be a company that focuses very heavily on people um, Mm. and management. So, Mm. so that's what the book's about. Okay, excellent. I, I'm, I'm going to very much want to explore these seven secrets in, in a moment. Sure. But before we, yeah. before we do that, perhaps I could just ask you, as you're saying this has been a while in the, while in the making. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you published it last, last autumn, but it's a sort of distillation and a development of much of your thinking. Um, it was published after global pandemic, and it was published after most countries had some form of lockdown, some kind of working from home, some kind of major eruption to some of those traditional workplace models that certainly for those people working in a kind of typical office environment had, had ever experienced. Would you have written this book had it not been for the pandemic? Would you, would you have written a different book if yeah, you'd written really it five question. years ago? There's, there's, there's virtually no mention of the pandemic in the book. And uh-huh. it turns out that the book is even more relevant now than it was before because what happened during the pandemic to most companies, most companies did become very people centric during the pandemic. um, And that was a good thing, but now they're coming out of the pandemic and they're going back to the old model and they're pushing people to work harder and, and, you know, interest rates are high and we've got inflation and, you know, everybody's concerned about productivity. So so the book is really transcendent beyond the, the pandemic and mm. there are some comments. I added some things very near the end about the pandemic and what we learned from that. But these, these are, these are, I think when you read it and we'll go through the seven things, there are things that apply to every company at any size. I mean, okay. I've, I've talked to a lot of people about the book who've read it. You know, it's been pretty well, it's been pretty successful. And generally what they say when they read it is that, wow, you know, these are the ideas that we've been sort of talking about, but we didn't know how to put them down on paper. Now I understand what I need to do. And that's the way I wrote the book. It's intended yeah. to be a book for action, not just education. So practical stories and examples. Guide. Mm, yeah. Mm, excellent. So some best some ideas and things to trigger your own thoughts to think about, right. well, how could I put that into practice in my own business? So when you say irresistible, I'm guessing then, from what you're what you're talking about, it is irresistible to um, the people that currently work in an organisation. In other words, they would want to stay, um, but equally irresistible to attract talent and people to go to work in that organisation. Both, both. Well, you know, what tends to happen, you know, as as most of you probably know from your own consumer lives, the companies that have happy people are companies you like to do business with. Mm-hmm. Um, they have good products, they have good service, you enjoy doing business with them, they're fair, they're equitable, they know what they stand for, you know what they stand for, um, you trust them, they, they trust each other, they tend to be good, they tend to be irresistible for everybody. <laughs> right, yeah. So yes. it's not just about HR, you know, employee engagement. Um, these are fundamental um, structural and sort of organizational things that make companies great period um, Mm -hmm. and they allow the company to be customer focused and to take care of customers too. I mean, Amazon, for example, does a lot of the things that are in this book. Um, You pick your own favorite company, 
Ritz-Carlton, whoever it is, Southwest Airlines, whatever company you, you know, really, really like doing business with, chances are they're doing a lot of things in this book. Yeah, interesting. Okay, which leads us a beautiful segue, I think, Josh, then to let's look at them. Let, let's, let's, sure. Have we got time to take each of them in turn? If so, let's do that. I can we? go quickly if you want, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let, let's do that. And then maybe if we see how we do for time. So what's the, are they in any, are they in order of priority? Well, the first one's kind of the most fundamental, and that is teams, not hierarchy. Because the fundamental change that I know HR people have been dealing with and, and senior business people is that the, a lot of the management principles of the past were about the hierarchy, about the senior leaders, the, the, the senior managers, the managers, the supervisors, down to the labor and, you know, a lot of companies, especially manufacturing companies, were really designed around this idea of the labor is a replaceable part, like a cog in a machine. The managers are a little more important. And then all the way up to the super important CEO and all the people at the top. Well, that's, you know, the way industrial companies worked in the 1800s and the early 1900s. Now everybody's in the services business, the IP business, the software business. They have to empower people. So the first chapter is about that hierarchical um, problem. And what the hierarchy does is it gets in the way. It, it creates bureaucracy. It, um, you know, forces middle managers to slow things down. People protect their turf. There's a lot of complexity in the HR organization to deal with all these different levels. Um, people don't want to, you know, necessarily work in a team unless they, you know, feel like the team is of, of their peers there's just all sorts of things that get in the way. So that's the first chapter is really describing why that happened. And there was a reason why it ended up that way. The reason there's a hierarchy was because in the industrial uh, model of business where we were mostly building products like parts and machines and stuff, um, we needed a hierarchy to manage it, to scale it. But now the, the, the thing that scales is speed and time to market and innovation. And so the hierarchy gets in the way. And, right. and I think most CEOs have learned that or they're learning it all the time. Mm, mm, mm. No, that, that makes sense. So that, that sort of, as you say, that's a fundamental principle that, that right. really has to be taken on board and, and, and dealt with. So does that mean getting rid of managers, Josh? Because I, I, the reason I throw that one in is because... It means I, having I, fewer of them. It means having yeah. fewer of them. It means uh -huh. um, not necessarily being so higher... That the managers are coaches, because actually one of the chapters, mm -hmm. the third one is coach, not boss, is that managers okay. are coaches, not bosses. Right. So right. that's part of the fundamental... Yeah. Shift. Yeah. The reason I asked that is I, I was at um, an event um, just over a year ago now, actually, where, where there was a, a speaker there from um, an advertising agency, actually, a digital advertising agency, and they had totally got rid of all their line managers. They'd, they'd appointed um, professional career co career coaches for people for their professional development and helping them to, yep. um, to get where they wanted to go in their in their working lives, but actually. Everybody had the freedom to book their own holiday, to plan their own work schedules, to decide when they wanted to work and how they wanted to work and all the rest of it. So there was no um, apportionment of tasks. Um, people were, were given, they had objectives that they needed to deliver and they were then empowered to go away and deliver them however they needed to. And then they had these professional coaches to help mm -hmm. support them with the relevant skill sets that they needed to. Really, I mean, quite, quite different. Um, 
Well, uh, companies are all moving in that direction, believe it or not. I mean, the professional services industry has already gone there, but um, mm. th- th- that's kind of the more enlightened model of the future where people are really as- associated with their teams or their projects. It mm. really gets to the second, the second chapter, which is called Work Not Jobs, because mm-hmm. um, what that's about is that in the industrial model, you had a job description and you the idea was you're standing on a production line or something and, you know, your job is very clear, you know, where it starts and where it ends. And these mm. days, no job is like that anymore. So um, we need a work-centric management model, an HR model, and that means that people are rewarded based on their skills, not just their tenure or their credential. Um, we pay them based on, you know, their market value as an individual, not the job itself Mm -hmm. that they happen to be in um and the this idea of job crafting you've probably you know heard people talk about that where you know we don't force the person to become the job the job becomes the person in a sense the company becomes the people the people don't become the company and each person who joins the company um you know within the boundaries of the responsibilities they have can add value to the job as needed based on the work that's being done. And these days, you know, with AI and all the tools that are being invented all the time to improve productivity, mm-hmm. most job descriptions are, you know, kind of an, a rough estimate yeah. <laughs> of what you're going to do because yeah. six months from now it's going to be a little different and then six months is going to be more different. So, so that's what that chapter is about. And that's really part of, you know, the whole three chapters together, the, the, the breaking down the hierarchy moving away from formal job descriptions and then having managers that can be coaches. In some sense, those things are all connected to each other. Yes. Yes. I can see that. And interesting though, I mean, and I, yeah, I think those are all very, in, of course, very, very valid things. How does that square in with, with employers in say, for example, in the, in the public sector um, where, very often the people directing the, the the kind of strategy and the approach are actually politicians who right. don't necessarily understand any of these principles. They're still very much <laughs> stuck in this command and control world. I mean, we've got a we've got a thing on a, a big big thing going on in the UK at the moment where there are there's there are lots of trials and attempts to um, pilot four day working weeks, for example. Yep, mm-hmm. and the politicians are getting hold of that and saying, no, no, you cannot do this. You must be that, you know, that they're, they're really sort of fighting it because it, in my mind, it seems they're kind of just not embracing any of this thinking. So um, does that, how do, how do you square that? How well, do you, you know, one of, you know I, I absolutely, that's a huge topic, actually, the four day work week. And you know, what happens, the reason leaders, politicians fight that idea is because it threatens their role and responsibility and title and power. And part of the you know, organizations of the future is for leaders to let go of this idea that I have the corner office, I have the special parking spot, I have the title, I have the level, um, you know, and so I'm going to protect that at all costs, and I'm going to manipulate all the things around me to keep my power intact. Um, that's not the way leadership works anymore. Leaders lead through inspiration, ideas, empowerment, training, education, connections, 
um, you know, driving change in companies. And, um, and I think politicians, because of the nature of what they do, they have to get elected. So they have to create popularity. Um, they tend to be pretty self-centered <clears throat> and mm. um, they don't want the organization biting them. Mm. They, you know, they want the organization. I think, I think enlightened politicians understand this, but um, you know, a lot of CEOs don't understand it, especially young no. CEOs. So it's, it's a, that's why the yes. book is kind of a, an eye-opener for lots of people at different levels of companies. Mm. No, it's fascinating, isn't it? No, it it's, it's possibly fair to say that many politicians are still a little bit stuck in the old hierarchical headspace um, mm-hmm. by so. nature of the mm-hmm. kind of people that they, they tend to be. And um, I suppose the, the responsibility is on those who are then trying to implement these things to challenge that thinking and actually say there's a there's a better way, a different way, if we if we really want to make this happen in any kind of, as you say, enduring way. Um, so yeah, okay. So those are the first three. Where do we go? Mm-hmm. Where do we go next, Josh? Well, let me run through the other ones so we don't run out of time. So in some sense, they're all connected. So the fourth one is called culture, not rules. And mm-hmm. um, you know, the thing about the, the the word culture is so vague. You know, everybody's got their own definition of it, but. You know, one way to think about culture is um, what behaviors are tolerated and what behaviors are not tolerated in the company and the organization. And yep. what you find in these, you know, highly high performing companies where they're very productive is they don't have to have so many rules. There are rules, but the rules are understood and well adopted because everybody talks about the culture, not because they talk about the rules. I mean, I was yes. on the phone with the head of HR from um, one of the big parts of Volvo the other day, mm-hmm. and I happen to have owned like 10 Volvos in my life, and she, she said, you know, we have four or five management principles that have to do with, you know, safety, responsibility, sustainability, customers, et cetera, quality, and, and we live by that, and we, we hire people based on those cultural attributes, and we reinforce them in our performance management and we talk about them in leadership and we talk about them in meetings. You know, another great example is Microsoft's transformation, which has now been going on for a long time where they, um, you know, got hold of the growth mindset idea and they really um, wanted to undo the competitive dog eat dog culture they had before with the, the cultural idea that we're all learning all the time and we need to learn from each other and with each other and we need to reinforce that in our, our own internal operations. So if you interrupt somebody in a meeting or, um, you know, firestorm or what's it called, firehose somebody's idea and not listen, that's not just against the rules. It's against our culture. And it's okay to call people out on it. You know, some companies, the culture is innovation. Some companies, the culture is low cost and um, some companies, it's speed and time to market. Some companies, it's customer centricity. Um, and those cultural ideas, if you write them down and, and talk about them, you don't need a bunch of rules on how to behave. Everybody just kind of knows. So that's that chapter. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. I love, I'm particularly interested in that. Cause I've, funnily enough, I've just been writing a, a, a white paper on that very topic this afternoon. So I need to get hold of a copy of your book, I think, Josh. <laughs> All right, take a look through there. You might find some good ideas. Um, <laughs> number five, the next one is called growth not promotion and um, here if you go back to the hierarchical idea I mean listen everybody knows you have to learn 
companies have to learn, people have to learn, there's training, there's skills, there's education, there's certification, there's all these things that you have to constantly learning, technology, process, business skills, industry skills, and so forth. But what gets in the way of that is this idea that, um, you know, if I'm going to learn this, am I going to get paid more? Am I going to get promoted? Is this in my career path? And so what that chapter is talking about is how do you democratize learning? How do you make time for learning? How do you, and, and we talked about this with Volvo too, you know, Volvo's trying to learn how to be an EV company, electric car company. Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of learning to do. I mean, just massive amounts. New people coming in know, who know things that nobody in Volvo knows. Um, yeah. So um, you know, how do you make time for that? So that chapter is all about socializing learning and not um, making it a reward or a ticket to get promoted that kind of yeah. just, just kind of gets in the way of it. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? I was only I was talking to a client of mine in in healthcare actually the the other the other well last week, and this mm-hmm. idea that actually growth and learning, even if not directly related to my job today, um, or my job this year, is still valuable and valid, and um, we we should encourage it and um, and make room for it. So. Uh, that's really interesting. It's not all directly related to what you're going to do. Well, it's also, on. yeah, I mean, learning is a huge engagement tool to get people excited mm. about their jobs and, you know, they, they come up with new ideas. It, it's got to be just sort of part of the whole culture. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Number six yeah. is called Purpose Not Profits. And, uh-huh. you know, that's kind of a big idea that I think a lot of companies understand, which is that um, what I've found is that most organizations that are reasonably successful, started with some purpose. There was some Mm -hmm. passionate entrepreneur who just wanted to do something better than everybody else. They figured out a way to do it in a very meaningful way that people would pay for it. And they built a company or an organization or a small company and it grew and it grew and it grew and they were profitable doing it. And what happens is a lot of companies, when they become bigger, they start chasing the financial numbers. Well, our mm-hmm. growth targets were 40% and we only grew at 30%, so we're not making as much money. So let's go out and hire more salespeople. Grow, 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 especially when you go public. Well, the problem mm-hmm. with that is you kind of lose track of w- what your purpose is. And so what that chapter is about, and there's many examples of this, Johnson & Johnson and healthcare providers and, you know, even tech companies, you know, why are they building these funky tools? What is the purpose of <laughs> what problem are they mm-hmm. trying to solve? Is that mm-hmm. when you keep talking about the problem and what we call fall in love with the problem, not the solution, you tend to build and deliver things that make a profit for you. And because you're solving real problems for people, but when you're chasing the numbers and you know, you're just buying companies to generate more revenue, you drift away from that and you tend to lose your profitability, you lose your focus, you're more vulnerable to competition and it's a little less engaging for employees too. So that chapter is about, um, mm-hmm. the financial value of, of purpose and, and lots of examples of that. And that, that comes up That's all the big, time in underperforming companies. Yeah, and it's a big challenge though, isn't it? Particularly, um, it's a really big challenge to sort of keep that principle in mind when you have had to chase the, the uh, investor capital and the venture, you know, the um, venture capitalist investment and answerable to shareholders and stockholders and all the rest of it who are demanding the numbers, the numbers, the numbers. Um, it, it's, it's 
it takes well, a the degree of discipline. Business, you know, the, the thing about business is, you know, I've started a couple of companies. There's there's a lot of people practices, but there's a lot of just operations. You you still have to do sales and marketing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but you have to have something to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not instead of, is it? No, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, sure. Okay, and then and and so then. Take, takes us to number seven. Okay, one more since we're running out of time. So the last one is called employee experience, not output. And the, the idea here is that if you want people to be productive, which everybody wants to be productive, we need to get out of their way. We need to make the employee experience better for them. It isn't a matter of pushing people to do more and measuring everything they do and tracking them and having all sorts of inspection meetings and say, how come this isn't done? How come that isn't done? It's really that's the wrong way to think about it. The right way to think about it is what can we do to make this job simpler, to make the objectives clear, to reduce the clutter, to clarify what's most important, and to give people the tools they need to do their job successfully. And most, 99% of employees, if you give them that kind of experience, are going to love their jobs because it's productivity that creates engagement. When I can do my job well, I feel good about my work. I feel good about my company. So that chapter is about employee experience and how central it is to a lot of these um, business issues. Excellent. Goodness me. Perfect timing. We've got 40 <laughs> seconds left. So one, um, one, one thing you would like listeners to take away, other than obviously to go to Amazon and, um, and buy, buy The Irresistible well, um, as you know, a publication. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the book's pretty pretty useful for people. I mean, the number one thing is that Taking care of people is a good business strategy. It isn't just HR. It isn't just mm. to feel good. It really makes a difference. And that's what the book's about. Excellent. Excellent. Josh, thank you very much. Um, thank you for listening to Engage with Success Radio. Thank you to today's special guest, Josh Burson. Um, and we'll wish you a very happy holiday in the UK, Josh, and look forward Thank to having you, you back at some future point. And to our listeners, don't forget, you can download or stream any of the great shows from all 498 shows in our archive at any time. Just visit engagewithsuccess.org. And if you want to get, in the invo- uh, get involved in the movement, you can also get in touch with us there. So thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.